Midnight in Karachi with Mahavish Murad on Tor.com. Joining me today on Midnight in Karachi is writer Malka Older, whose uh, book, let me get that right, Infomacracy, is that how you say it? Perfect. Infomacracy is now out and has been lauded all over the place. Malka, welcome to Midnight in Karachi. Thanks. It's great to be here. Tell me, please, what infomacracy is about and how does it feel now that it's out there and that, you know, it's it's left the nest, as it were, and it's being uh, appreciated all over the place. Yeah, thanks. It's It's been a really exciting ride and I've been really overwhelmed with the amount of attention that it's got and, and criticism, good criticism. And I think that um, really what's most exciting for me about this is the way that people are engaging with the issues and a lot of people have been tweeting to me or writing to me about how interesting they find this sort of politically wonky side of it which was very exciting for me writing but I wasn't sure exactly how it was going to come across. So as that as a, as a sort of lead-in I can um, tell you a little bit about what it's about. It's a political thriller set late in the 21st century um, about 50 to 60 years from now at this time, the nation-state is pretty much gone. There are few holdouts left over. But for the most part, people live in administrative units called sentinels, which are 100,000 people. So 100,000 people in one place, it could be a couple of neighborhoods in a very dense city, or it could be you know huge hundreds of mi- square miles in a desert or rural area. So the size varies. It's all done by population. And then each of these units can vote for any government that they want of all the governments that exist in the world, which means that those governments are governing over areas that are not necessarily geographically contiguous. They could have a couple of sentinels in Asia and some in Europe and some more in Africa and a little cluster over here in South America. And holding this whole system together is a kind of hyper-Google, the super internet bureaucracy called information. Um, They monitor things, they annotate uh, lies that are spoken by public figures, um, particularly in the context of an election, which is what's going on as the novel begins. So spies, sabotage, global micro-democracy, even pachinko parlors, um, and all (laughs) these strange electoral processes. Tell me where, you know, all this originated from. Did you have I know you're a humanitarian aid worker as well, and you're obviously involved in global politics to an extent. And by involved, you mean I mean you have an opinion on what's going on, which I think is hard to do, uh, hard not to do for everyone. But we'll come back to that. But tell me where it started from. Did you start off with a premise, an idea? Did you start off with a character? Well, it started off, first of all, as two different kind of uh, frustrations that I was feeling, um, one very global and one very specific to the U.S., although I think it has parallels in other places. So the first thing was about issues of territorial integrity and sovereignty, and particularly having worked in and lived in a number of different countries that had either active secession movements or civil wars or were fighting over territory. So places like Sri Lanka, Sudan, uh, I was there before it technically split, Indonesia, which East Timor had recently Uh, come off and there's some other areas that we're hoping to. Um, But also, you know, it's it's not just the places that we think of maybe as 
as being very violent about this or still being countries that, that maybe are, are open to splitting. But also, you know, in all of Europe, we've just seen with Brexit, um, even before that, Scotland has been talking about it for a long time. There's secessionist movements in Spain, uh, in Italy, fairly mildly, but also in France, Belgium. Um, so it's really quite widespread that there's this, this tension between... So there's this tension between, uh, you know, we have democracies and, and, and most of these countries that I'm talking about are democracies, uh, at least in name. Um, we have democracy and we have this idea that we can sort of choose our own destiny as, as a country, but what, what a country is and, and who gets to participate and what happens to minorities within democracies are all still being really contested. Um, so that was very interesting to me and it was very frustrating to me in the sense that I, I felt like some of this is a bit antiquated, that there's, there's a certain sense in, among a lot of particularly governments and country leadership that being big in size and territory is still really important. Um, and I think it was at one point in the way that economies worked. Now it's much less so. And, you know, if we look at, at the world and we look at the economies and the countries that are functioning well, it's not always the ones that have a lot of territory. Um, and so the, the question of why you would, you would fight so hard to cling to pieces of territory that really don't want to be in the same country and why it's so hard for, for minority groups to have their interests met within a democracy. Those were things that I was wondering about. And then the, the flip side of that, the other issue, was really related to the previous U.S. election cycle in 2012 when I was getting very frustrated with the, the, the difficulty of really pinning down facts within politics and how hard it was to have an argument with someone that I disagreed with, which I think is you know, something that I have enjoyed in the past and I think it's a really important part of both understanding your own opinions <clears throat> And really being able to to understand others and and to think about what what you're you're arguing for and what you're voting for, but it it became harder and harder to do that to have those discussions with people I disagreed with because it wasn't just that we thought differently about things it was that we couldn't even figure out what the things we were talking about what had really happened you know there was depending on which um, cable news program you watch or which internet sites you go from you have a totally different idea of what happened and what the studies say, and what has been proved or disproved by statistics. And so I was, I was very frustrated by that, and I, I felt that, and I still feel, of course, this has not, not exactly gotten better in the intervening four years, as we are seeing, um, and it's certainly not unique to the United States, uh, but that's where I was experiencing it four years ago. Um, I felt and feel that we actually do have quite a lot of the tools and data storage capacity and just overall information management capacity to deal with this problem. We, and there are certain initiatives that aim to do so. You know, you see fact-checking, um, certainly Twitter sometimes attempts to, to take on some of that role in, in various different pieces. Uh, but because there is no mandate to do it, because there's no single site that does it, because there's still a lot of echo chamber going on, even when you you subscribe to one or another of these fact checkers, or uh, it still doesn't seem to have the impact on on allowing us to have somewhat more fact based and evidence based debates uh, that one would hope. So I had these two frustrations, and I had these sort of you know just thinking in my head about what we could do with the technology that exists now and that will exist in the future in terms of both removing government from um, 
the chance of where you happen to be located or where you were born, just uncoupling that and letting you have a bit more freedom of, of choice and in terms of, of where, what kind of government you want to belong to as well as what place you want to live in. And then on the other side, really trying to have some kind of information basis for the, the policy debates and the discussions that we have. And these were churning along in my head and I was coming up with some ideas for this. Um, but then I had a, a, a scene, actually, that, that kind of a place that helped me to, to really get into the world of the novel and get into the world of the future that the novel needed to be in. Um, this was when I was working in Japan after the 2011 tsunami. Because the areas on the coast were destroyed, we needed to stay farther away. We stayed in a city that was about an hour away from the coast, and we would commute back and forth every day about an hour each way. And... One of the things that I saw over and over again on these commutes was, in fact, a pachinko parlor. And it was this, you know, it's a pretty rural area already. There, there wasn't a lot of new stuff being built. So it was a somewhat old pachinko parlor. And this, the sign on the top, the name of the pachinko parlor was 21st century. Like, it, and, and there was this kind of cheesy neon sort of design on the sign. And as I stared at it over and over again day by day, it occurred to me, it really felt like they had built this place and put this sign up and named it at a time when the 21st century maybe hadn't even started yet and seemed like an exciting and futuristic thing. And now it looked like a somewhat decrepit pachinko parlor that was kind of stating the obvious that, yes, we're in the 21st century and we've already been here for, at that time, 11 years. And that sort of dislocation and the way that time changes perspectives on concepts for me, is, is kind of interesting. And somehow just having that image really helped me to, to get into the future and, and have just start with a setting for the novel. And because also I think that time of working in Japan was a very intense and emotional and interesting and difficult one, I think that also helped me to sort of wire some of that into the novel as I started writing. Now, the process of putting it all together, stitching the ideas up, if you will, with a cohesive narrative, you know, concerning interesting characters, was that a tough process, given the depth of the ideas? Um, not, not so much for me. I found that once I had started it and, you know, I had a good idea because I had been turning these ideas over in my head for quite a while before I, I started writing. I had, I had a decent idea of what the, the world or at least the political system looked like at this time. So once I got the characters, once I had people who, you know, were strong enough that I could imagine what they would be doing next, uh, it was, and I, and I, you know, I had already a couple of thoughts about, about some of the things that I wanted to show of what would go right and what would go wrong with this political system. Uh, so it was actually, it was just a lot of fun, really, to, to move forward with that. And, um, you know, I wanted to make it, I definitely wanted to make it global as much as possible. And... So for me, it was also a lot of fun to write about places that I'd lived and imagine them projected into the future. Uh, so that was enjoyable. And then just, you know, playing with the idea of, of intrigue and political gamesmanship and all the geopolitical complications and how this would look at, in this different uh, world order was, was really a lot of fun. Speaking of the different cities and the different places, I was wondering the research that it took and the different cities the book travels to, the different sort of cultures you've extrapolated on for the near future. How did you go about that? Well, it really, you know, they are almost all either 
places I've lived or places I've at least been through or places that are quite um, close geographically to some of the places that I've been and lived in. So I didn't have to do very much research. Um, I was, you know, I was mainly thinking back on, on places that I'd been. And one thing that I, I like to think about when I'm writing is one of the things I use to kind of target my writing is I like to write things that I, I miss things, places, people, situations that I miss because I find that adds a lot of immediacy to it when you're writing about something that you, you know, you have a memory of that's very strong and you're not anywhere near there now. You can't go back right away, but it, it gives you something to, to yearn for a bit in the writing. Um, so there was that. I did have to do a little bit of research in terms of just because I had this, this idea of the units with 100,000 uh, people. I did have to do a bit of research in things like predictive population modeling and then, you know, looking at the places I was talking about to, to think a little bit about how many of these units there would be. And, um, but other than that, you know, it was, it was all places that I, that I knew already. And now the book's also being talked about as cyberpunk. And I mean, I'm the last person to say that it needs a specific genre to fit into, but I have to ask, were you interested before in cyberpunk? Have you been a fan of that sort of writing before? Yes, I, um, I mean, I'm a big fan of Neil Stevenson um, and William Gibson, and I, I read quite widely, so I wouldn't say that that's, you know, the only thing I read, I've read or, or, or my favorite genre. I can't really pick a favorite genre, um, but it was something that I, I had read a lot, and I certainly had it in mind when I began, I think particularly because I began in Japan, and a lot of the cyberpunk has, has a quite Japan focus right. um, geographically, which is another reason actually that I wanted to keep it moving well beyond that. Um, but I did have that sort of that aesthetic in mind, um, a little bit of the, the coolness and the detachment and the urgency. Uh, and it was, you know, it was already important given the premise and given this world that there be a mix of action that goes on in the real world and action that happens in sort of the data world and the virtual communications world. Do you think it's possible, as we were speaking earlier, for writers of fiction not to let the politics of their world seep into their writing? And I use the word politics again loosely, of course. Mm -hmm. I think it's, I mean, I, I don't think it's, it's ever possible to be completely removed from any opinion or any politics. Um, that's actually something that I've been struggling with a bit more on the academic side because I am a PhD student, so I do academic writing as well. And I initially took, you know, looked at academic writing with the attitude that I would have to be sort of impartial in some way and not think about my personal opinions or my experience, which my working experience, which is quite related to what I write about. And you know, my thesis advisor told me, no, no, actually, you, you should put that in there, but you just have to be clear about it, which I think is, is very valuable advice because you really can't be completely impartial. Um, and so I think in fiction, it's a bit different because you're not going to be clear about it in the sense of coming out and saying, this is what I think I'm the author and I'm going to tell you, hey, you could, it could make an interesting novel, but generally you're not going to do that. But there's just, there's no way to not have an opinion about things. There's no way to not have preferences. And I think it's better to be honest about it as you're writing than to try to not have an opinion. So for me, you know, obviously it's, it is a quite political novel. It, it is, you know, both political and, and, and has a lot of political economy and some, um, 
in this world, there's a bunch of different governments, but because it's not too far future, they're all fairly familiar. <laughs> and so, you know, while I was never endorsing any party or candidate that we would see now, I think that there are quite a few of my opinions that are, that are quite clear in it. And, you know, I'm fine with that. I, what I hope is, and what I've found, as I said earlier, from, from people's reactions, what I hope is that it gets people to engage with these ideas and particularly the idea that it's not just the parties or the governments and the policies, but the process itself of democracy is both determinative of the result and, and really important in terms of how we're creating our, our government, how we're creating our space. So I think having, you know, having that opening up that idea of, of talking about the process was, was for me something that I thought, you know, by, by opening that up, whatever my opinions came through, I felt like they were, they were fairly clear and people can take them or leave them and say, well, you know, I would have liked this government, I would have liked this government, and that's perfectly fine. What, I, what I'm interested in is getting people to engage really with, with some of these ideas. I don't want to ask too much about American politics. I mean, the whole world is, has gone mad right now. But uh, did you ever imagine that things in real life could get crazier than fictional elections? <laughs> I, you it's know, hard to believe this is all real, right? It is, it is very hard to believe it's all real. I, I think that there's another theme in the book that I haven't talked about as much because I think it's, you know, it's a bit subtler and people don't ask about it very much. But another thing that, that I, I write about in this future is that narrative is seen very differently. And one of the main characters has what is called a narrative disorder, which in the world of the book is a diagnosable, um, defined medical mental disorder. And it has to do with the way the narratives that we ingest, whether by watching them or by reading them or by listening to them, affect our perceptions of the world and affect our expectations of the way the world works. Um, obviously, there's, there's a two-way interaction here. The way the world works also affects the way we create narratives. But we, we recognize that we, don't, we aren't as conscious, I think, as of how it goes the other way. So, <laughs> well, as, as incredible as it is that some of the things that are occurring in the political arena right now, you know, I think a lot of that does come from the kind of narratives that we have created recently, the kind of stories. And those stories normalize certain actions, even when we recognize them as fiction, even when we recognize them as kind of soapy, extreme fiction. And that allows some of this, I think, to to happen and also, you know, the way we understand it. We understand it and people are saying, oh, this is incredible, this is unbelievable. And yet, you know, nothing has yet ground to a halt. Um, everything is still, is still believed in the sense that it's still going on, it's still happening. So I, I would say, I would say that. I would also say that, you know, I think we tend to underestimate just how ridiculous and incredible and unbelievable politics were in other times as well. I think if you read about some of the things that happened um, in the early stages of the democracy in the United States, certainly if you look at some of the really, I mean, pick a, a, a country, a government, whether it's democratic or not, and you're going to have a lot of outsized personalities. You're going to have some very interesting scandals that aren't just, you know, the sort of typical scandal that we would call a trope, but that go into some interesting places and you have people doing things that are unbelievable. And so, you know, there, there is that too. And none, none of that excuses 
um, some of the things that are that are going on in terms of whether they're professional or whether they're uh, ethical. <laughs> that's uh, that's not what I'm talking about here. But I do think that there's there's a lot of room for extravagance in politics, and that's one of the things that makes it a lot of fun to write about. Now, before the PhD and before you were writing novels and writing fiction, writing short stories, you were an aid worker, I believe. So, mm-hmm. you know, how did you end up there? And I should also ask, were you also always going to end up as a writer, did you think? I was always hoping to, and I was always writing um, as I as I worked because, you know, I needed to work. But I, I did always want to be a writer. You know, I've been a intense reader from a very young age and it just I think you know when you read constantly and that's one of the main ways you communicate with the world uh, and learn about the world I think it's kind of natural to then turn around and want to write your own stories so I have always been a writer um, and I certainly had ideas when I left college that I was just going to write a novel and that would be (laughs) and naturally it didn't work out quite that way which I'm actually I think very happy about because I've had some really amazing experiences and, and grown a lot through the different jobs that I've held since then. So I'm, I'm really quite grateful for that. Um, but yes, I, I, uh, I always wanted to not just travel, but really live in different places and experience different cultures and different countries. And I, I always loved languages. And I started after college teaching English in Japan. Um, and which was great, but at some point I, you know, I wanted a job that was a bit more um, challenging and, and complicated for me than teaching English, and I was, as I did travel to different places, I was more and more interested in, you know, why the world is the way it is at the, you know, at the sort of country level in terms of how different economies interact and how, um, you know, if you if you travel to a country and all of a sudden your money is worth so much more than it was um, in your home country and things that you have a certain price for in your head have a totally different price here. And it starts to make you think about how these things fit together. So I was just getting very interested in, in figuring out more about the way the world works on this sort of macro scale and um, became interested in working in, in development actually more than aid to start with. Um, and one of my first jobs was in Sri Lanka, and I was working on some microfinance stuff and some peace building stuff. And while I was there, the 2004 tsunami happened, and so I got wrapped up as 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 I think everyone who was there did in the response and in the the aftermath of that. And that really shifted me in a lot of ways towards emergency work, um, which I did for a while on and off and then kind of alternated that with development work uh, for quite a while and eventually moved into more disaster risk reduction work which is you know trying to re- trying to make things better before the disaster happens so that when the disaster does happen um, there are fewer casualties because there's there's certainly a limit to what you can do after it occurs. Now you and your brother Daniel both write speculative fiction, though of mm-hmm. course of very different sorts so far. Uh, I wonder if you shared reading tastes as kids, though I'm sure you've been asked that before. I think uh, we we did quite a bit, not entirely and not entirely, and we still do actually. We often give each other books, um, and we often are quite uh, quite similar in our reactions to books. Not always. Um, 
that we certainly disagree on things, but quite a lot when we get into, well, there's, there'll be something and we'll talk about the nuances and we'll really agree, not just on like or dislike, but on, you know, oh, I, I, I thought that this character, the stakes weren't quite high enough, or I really like this action sequence, but then I had a problem with X, Y, Z, you know, so actually I think we do really, uh, in some ways, uh, get each other in that. And we, you know, we shared books a lot and, um, he would tell you too that he stole a lot of mine, but he usually gives them back. Who were your heroes as a, a child or as a teenager when you were growing up and you were reading? Who were the writers you, you know, hoped you could be as good as? Hmm. Um, as I was, you know, as sort of a, a kid and growing up, I was a, a huge Tolkien fan. Um, and I also read, you know, I... I I really loved Alexander Dumas. I read a lot of that. And um, I read a really wide range of things then, too, because I would read things like, I mean, think as a kid again, you know, I'd read like the Black Stallion, the whole series, and then The Wizard of Oz, and then um, Anne of Green Gables. And just, you know, I would just kind of go through the, the kids and then getting into the young adult section in the, in the bookstore. And um, so speculative, non-speculative, really the, the whole range of things. Um, and as I, as I got older, I started to really like things like, um, Nabokov, for example, I love Nabokov, uh, so much. And, um, I'm trying to think of some other good examples from a long time ago. Uh, I started reading some Latin American, uh, literature too, like, uh, Garcia Marquez, and um, I, I actually really liked Tolstoy too when I read him in, in high school. I, I, I read a lot of classics in sort of high school and, and early college, I think, because it felt like, um, you know, it's, and I remember moving out of the young adult section and into the adult section of the bookstore, right? And it was almost overwhelming because there were so many books there, and so little way to know which ones to read. And so I, I think I went for the classics for a while because of that, just figuring there must be something good about them if, if, if everyone thinks so. And so, you know, this is something to grab onto as I moved into this much wider world of reading. And I studied literature in college, so that also, I think, helped. Um, it, was, it was quite a, a modern department, actually, so that helped bring me into the modern era a bit more. Um, and read just also, again, more, more widely. So, Was there a classic you read and you thought, oh, I don't know why everyone loves this? Uh, plenty of them. <laughs> <laughs> plenty of them. I, I particularly dislike Kerouac, for example. Right. Um, I, Hemingway, I, you know, I can see some of his, his good qualities in writing, but you know, some of these, I think, really knowing things about the author is detrimental to your enjoyment of their their work. And uh, Hemingway, I think quite a lot of his his more disagreeable personality traits actually bleed through into his writing. I'm not sure I could have phrased this in exactly this way, although maybe I could have at that, you know, studying literature in college, I probably had the words for this. But when I felt excluded from a work, I think it was very hard for me to to appreciate it. And so the kind of um, misogyny that you see in, in Hemingway is, is just a real turn-off for me. Right. Or Kerouac, for that matter. And of course, that remains even now, whether it's a classic or not. I mean, I would feel of the course. same way about anything contemporary as well. Yeah, of course. 
And it's astounding, isn't it, how many contemporary writers are still not savvy to this? Yeah, it really, really is. <laughs> it's amazing. And, you know, I think, I think just getting out of, um, getting out of your comfort zone is just so important. And, um, I think feeling like the other at some point, and I, you know, I, I read this actually, and I don't want to not attribute, but it was a tweet and I don't remember who put it up. Um, but someone had mentioned that having felt like an other at some point in your life was really important to be able to write the other with respect. And I think it's actually really important just as a person and to be able to write in general, not just to be able to write about the other. Right. Um, although it's possible, I think that way, just because I have always felt pretty, pretty other. Um, and, and it's a place that I'm very comfortable in. So, you know, maybe that's, that's my perspective skewing things as well. Now, Tommy, what are you working on next? I know you have a sequel coming up, don't you? Yes, there's a sequel for Infomocracy. It's called Null States, and it's, it's due out in about a year. And I am working on that a bit. It's, it's finished, but I'm still working on the edits. So, uh, And I, have, I always have a lot of projects going on. I actually prefer when I'm writing to have multiple uh, things open so that if I get a little bit stuck on one, I can go work on another and come back. And I find it's generally, um, it's generally helpful to me to... It's, it's stimulating to have different projects going on with different voices. So uh, I am working on a couple of other things, and we'll see. We'll see what comes out of them. Secret things you can't talk about. It's a little early yet, I think, for most of them. All right, so we're going to wait and hopefully speak to you when, uh, when it's the right time. Great. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you. It was a pleasure.